Uh, so we are starting uh, a fairly long journey this morning through the book of Genesis. And I know we just read a passage in the Gospel of Luke. We'll get to that in a second. And as we journey through the book of Genesis, we're going to talk about a lot of things. And one of the things uh, that I like to do is um, interact as a body on Sundays. And so the way we're going to do that as we journey through Genesis together is we're going to frequently put up the Q&R phone number. Uh, this is an anonymous text line that we have set up. So if you have any questions about anything that we're going over today uh, or next week or any time throughout our study, just text it in during the service, and I'm going to just provide for a little bit of time at the end this morning to go over any questions anyone has. Um, and uh, we'll see if, if there aren't any questions, then we'll just end. And if there are, then, then we'll maybe talk about them a little bit. So the first question that I have for you all, though, is this. Why, why did they make the Star Wars prequels? That's what I was... I knew somebody was going to say money. <laughs> yeah, money. Okay. That's true. It's money. But also, because there's things about Star Wars that are left unanswered. Uh, if, you, if you know the Star Wars story, the, the first Star Wars movie is episode four in 1977, I think, when it came out. And, and they, they drop all this knowledge. Obi-Wan says, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. And Luke and Leia talk about, do you, do you remember our mother throughout the, the trilogy? And, and so there's just all this backstory. And you don't really know anything about it. And so the prequels come out and they flush out all the details that are kind of alluded to in the first trilogy but aren't really explored. And we just got done a little while ago with a two-year study of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is like jumping into the story in episode four of Star Wars. It's maybe the most important part of the story. It's the central part of the story. But there's a lot of background information. Matthew quotes stuff like, like Moses said back here. And he talks about these things that happened in the past. And Jesus refers to the, the history of Israel. And you just go like, there's more to this story that we don't have in the Gospel of Matthew. And we read in Luke 24 that Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised from the dead, and the women went to the tomb and they didn't find him, and the angels said, he's not here, he's risen from the dead. And two of Jesus' disciples, one of them we know his name is Cleopas, and the other one we don't know their name, are, are walking uh, to a nearby town from Jerusalem, and they've heard all of this, and they're super confused. We thought Jesus was the Messiah. We thought he was the king. He was going to rescue the world from sin and death, but he died, and now people are saying that he's risen from the dead. What's going on? And Jesus shows up and acts kind of coy, like, what's going on, guys? What are you so sad about? And they say, don't you know? Haven't you heard? And he goes, no, tell me, and, which is awesome. I love Jesus' sense of humor. And he says, let me tell you the story. 
And he starts at the very beginning of the Bible and goes all the way through as they walk to this town called Emmaus, all of the places in scripture that point forward to him. And so as we start the book of Genesis, that's, that's the framework that we get to look at this book in. This isn't, this isn't a book primarily about ancient history. This isn't primarily a book about some guy named Abraham. It's not primarily about the flood. All of those things are in there, but they serve a purpose. They tell the backstory of Jesus. The book of the scriptures, the 66 book library that we have, this is a book about ultimately God. And Genesis is the first chapter of that book. As Christians, we want to be a people that are pursuing a relationship with Jesus. We don't want to just know things about God. We don't want to just affirm a certain set of beliefs. These are the things that I do. These are the things that I don't do. This makes me a good person. That's not the point. The point is developing a real personal relationship with the God of the universe. And so when we open the book of Genesis, we want to have that in mind. John believes this to be true. In his gospel, he starts his gospel like this. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts his gospel, his story about Jesus, with the exact same words that the book of Genesis starts with. In the beginning... It's almost like John is saying, like, I don't have time to unpack this right now, but if you really want to know the story, start in the book of Genesis. So we're going to be in the book of Genesis for a while. Um, it's gonna, we're, we're planning on getting through the first 11 chapters by Advent this year, and then after that, we're going we're gonna to have to figure it out next year. But for the first couple of weeks in our study of Genesis, we're not... We're not going to quite make it to Genesis. Uh, or it's going to take us three weeks to just kind of introduce the book. It's a big book. It's an important book. There's a lot to keep in mind here. So this is introduction week one. And I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about Genesis' place in the Bible. Where does Genesis occur in Scripture? I want to talk about something called Hebrew narrative history, which is the kind of literature that Genesis is. And then I want to talk about something that uh, we're calling hyperlinks, which I'll explain later. So first of all, Genesis place in scripture. We, I'm going to throw some numbers up on the screen. We have 66 authoritative books in our Bible library. It's important to remember that this is not one book. It is 66 separate books combined into a single collection. 39 of those books are in what we call the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. And 27 of them are the New Testament. The New Testament was written in a single generation at the start of the early church. The Old Testament took at least a thousand years to write. At the beginning of the Old Testament, there are five books called the Torah or the Pentateuch. These five books are also called the, the books of Moses. So when we read in other places in the Bible, like Moses said, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. 
Genesis is the first book in the scriptures of the first book of the Pentateuch, and it has 50 chapters. All these 50 chapters record history that predates Moses. Moses doesn't begin his life until the book of Exodus. And so Genesis is all history that Moses is recording. Genesis is divided into three sections. The first 11 chapters are what we call prehistory. These are events that took place a long time ago, and we're not really sure exactly when they happened. Chapters 12 through 36 is the story of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, and his life and his children are recorded there. And then chapters 37 through 50 is the story of one of his great-grandsons, Joseph. Like I said, we're going to be in the first 11 chapters of this book through till Advent. Uh, And one thing to be aware of is more time passes between chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 11 of Genesis than has passed from the time of Abraham to today. So there's more history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis than there has been since Abraham was born. Genesis is in the Bible at the very beginning, right? And it's, it sets up and answers the most foundational questions in our lives. Where did we come from? Who are we? What's the point of life? Why is the world so broken? And ultimately, we get these questions answered by God himself as he's authored scripture. We're going to talk next week about who the human author of Genesis was. It's Moses. But it's complicated. But <laughs> but the first part of the story doesn't have any witnesses other than God. We're going, to re- we're going to start learning about the creation of the world. And the only person that's there to witness it is God himself. And so God, ultimately, he has to choose to let us in on what he's doing at the beginning. No one else was there to watch. And this is a really beautiful picture of who our God is. God always makes the first move. God is an initiating God. He comes after people. In, in our history, in my life personally, in your life personally, God is the one that initiates relationship. This, this information about creation, we wouldn't know anything about it if God didn't say, hey, let me tell you what I was doing back then. Let me tell you how this all worked out. Because he cares about people, he loves people, and he wants to pursue people in relationship. And over and over in this book, we're going to see that thread that the author of life, our God, makes the first move. He makes the first move in creation. He makes the first move with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, with all of these uh, heroes of the faith. God is constantly giving of himself for the benefit of people. So how does this story get told? Uh, I'm using the word Hebrew narrative history. 
So Genesis is written a long time ago in a culture very different from ours. The ancient Hebrew people lived in a very different world. But they still tell stories, just like we tell stories today. And this story is a theological story. It's not just a set of facts. This isn't a, a, just a record. Hey, we need to write some stuff down. This is part of the beginning part of the story of who God is, and it's supposed to teach us something. And the fact is every historian is telling a story. If you read a biography of a famous person, they're, they're telling a story. And all history comes from a perspective. Every author of history puts things in, and they leave things out. And so the choices that are made in the book of Genesis are made to tell God's story. God's action in the world, either directly or indirectly, specifically with reference to the people of Israel. God is the main character in this story. And sometimes we have a problem with this. We think that history should be just, especially in the Western world, history should just be the facts. Just tell me exactly what happened. Don't, don't give it any perspective. I just want to know the facts. But what if you read in the newspaper tomorrow, approximately 60 people met in an old church auditorium in downtown Coeur d'Alene for about an hour and a half. They sang three songs, listened to a lecture on the book of Genesis, had a small meal of wine and dried bread, and sang three more songs. Would that be true? I think so. We're not done yet, but uh, yeah. But what if you read, the room was filled with the voices of the saints as they rehearsed the goodness of God to one another through song, as the sunlight beamed through the historic windows. Would that be true? Yeah. What if you read, I was feeling pretty low today as I came into church. The smiles of my friends and the words of the second song that we sang really spoke to me. I really needed the comfort that God's people provided me today. Would that be true? I mean, it's a little more personal, but if that's what somebody's feeling, that's true, right? Each one of these stories includes things about the real world and and also leaves things out because of the perspective that they're looking at but they're all true. Now, but what if we read 60 half-naked men and women gathered in the dark this morning and chanted druidic spells while three young tigers jumped through rings of fire on stage? Would that be true? No, that would be false, right? So, so there is truth and there is falsehood, right? But even when we see reality, we all see things different ways and we all have a perspective. And so the author of Genesis is crafting his story to say, this is what God is like. If we accept the idea that the story of Genesis is from six to 10,000 years old, think of all the things that didn't get included. Think of all of the people that didn't get talked about. Think of all the events that got skipped over. But that's okay, because the point of the story is to set up the story of God that culminates in who Jesus is. J. Phillips Long, who is a Bible scholar, I think has a really helpful understanding of how historians work. We sometimes want history to be a cell phone video, although we've, we've learned recently that even when you have a cell phone video, people argue about what they've seen. But imagine taking a cell phone video or a, a cell phone picture of a person 
versus hiring an artist to do an oil painting of that person. If you hire a good artist to paint your portrait, you would expect that that artist would create something that looks like you, but it's still going to look like you as the artist sees them. And then if you, if you hired a different artist to paint your same portrait, it would probably look a little different. And it's the same thing with history. Genesis doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the past. It tells us the things that are important for us to know about the past. Sometimes we're, we're going to come to places in Genesis where we ask questions from our modern perspective that Genesis isn't really trying to answer. And so we have to be okay with that. One last thing about Hebrew history. The Hebrew language is a very compact, concise language. If you've ever looked at a Hebrew Bible, there's like big, long verses in English that fit into really small spaces in Hebrew. The words carry a lot of meaning to them. Tremper Longman says, because Hebrew narrative is restrained rather than wordy, the words used are typically pregnant with significance. This demands that the reader pays close attention to the details of the story. Significance may be found in a single descriptive word or even the lack of a word where one might be expected. A really good example of this is in the story of Cain and Abel. We see these two brothers who bring sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God and Cain's sacrifice is not. And so this begs the question, why? Why was Abel's sacrifice okay and Cain's wasn't? And the story doesn't tell us, but I think it shows us because in one word, it says that Abel brought the best of his flocks and Cain brought some of his produce. That one word, Abel brought the best and just Cain didn't. And I think the author, in a very simple, compact, showy way, is saying, Abel really cared about what he was giving to God. And Cain was just kind of going through the motions. But a lot of Hebrew literature is like that. We have to ask questions and look carefully at the words, at the sentences, what words are being used, what words are being left out, in order to understand the meaning. So the third thing I want to talk about this morning is what Bible scholar Tim Mackey calls hyperlinks. The Hebrew Bible is written by master storytellers, really, really good literary artists in combination with the Spirit of God. And we're going to read things throughout Scripture that reference back to the book of Genesis. We're going to read things in Genesis that don't really make a lot of sense until we see them come up again later in the story. And there's these constant, if you, if you go to a website and you click a hyperlink, a link, it, it, it takes you to another page. And that's what these, these little word pictures and, and little nuggets throughout Genesis are going to do. I'll give you some examples in a minute, but the whole of the Hebrew Bible and even into the New Testament is intricately connected like this. And Genesis, in many ways, unlocks some of these connections. I think this is one of the best arguments for why we believe that the Bible is ultimately written by God. This is divinely inspired. 
because the story just weaves itself together in ways that multiple human authors over multiple centuries probably couldn't do. I want to give you three examples of this. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba. So first of all, this is Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. There are three very normal words in this passage. The woman saw that the tree was good, and she took it. Fast forward hundreds of years to 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hethite? The author of 2 Samuel knows the book of Genesis. And so when he crafts this passage, he says that from the roof, he, David, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman, which is the same Hebrew word as the word for good. And so David sent someone to inquire about her, which is the same word in Genesis for took. So these three words, saw, good, and took, are repeated when David saw beautiful and inquired about this woman. And the author of 2 Samuel isn't just doing that by accident. He's doing it on purpose because he wants to connect David back to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Adam and Eve are sinning against God by taking from the forbidden fruit of this tree that they're not supposed to take. And it, it brings dire consequences into the world. It destroys the beauty of the garden, brings sin and death into all of creation. And then we get to King David, the good king, the king after God's own heart, the, the anointed one, the one is the, that might, he might be the guy that brings order and restores God's people, but oh no. David, he saw, and, he, and it was good, and he took it, just like Eve did. And the author of 2 Samuel is saying, this is David's Adam and Eve moment, and he's going to fail too. Here's another example. In Genesis 1.28, God says, or God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. This is the call of humanity to spread the goodness of creation as God's representatives to the whole world. Then we get to the book of Acts. And Luke writes in Acts 6, 7, so the word of God spread and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And then again in Acts 12, but the word of God spread and multiplied. There's a lot of ways that Luke could have said those words, but he chose to use the same words that God uses when he says be fruitful and multiply. And I think what Luke is doing is he's saying, hey, Christians, you know Genesis, the call for all of us to be fruitful and multiply and spread across the earth and spread God's peace and beauty everywhere we go. In some way, that's what you're doing as the church. You're spreading around the world, bringing the good news of Jesus wherever you go. And those two ideas are connected. 
And one more, this one goes backwards. In Genesis 3, 5, we read, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is when Adam and Eve are being tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and you kind of think, if you've read this passage, why is it such a big deal? Why are they not supposed to know good and evil? Why, why is God trying to keep knowledge from them? And there's a lot of theories about that, and there's a lot of really weird doctrines that have developed about that over the years. But if you keep reading in the scriptures, eventually you get to Deuteronomy chapter 1, where the people of Israel have come to the promised land, and they found giants there, and they're afraid to go in. And God says, because you're afraid to go in, you're not going to go in. I'm going to leave you out here for 40 years, and your children are going to go in. And God says, your children who you said would be plunder, your sons who don't yet know good from evil will enter there. I will give them the land and they will take possession of it. Good from evil is this metaphor for being young, for being innocent, for being ignorant. A little farther along in 1 Kings, Solomon becomes king and God says, Solomon, whatever you want, I will give to you. And Solomon says, Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people. You have chosen a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? This is, this is Solomon's ask. Give me wisdom to judge between good and evil. And God says, I'm going to give you that. I'm going to make you the wisest person that ever lived. And then in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah warns the people and he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so as we read through the scriptures, we begin to understand this idea of good and evil. This is, this is this idea of wisdom, something that we need as people. And it makes sense because at the very beginning of Genesis, God says, be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth. This whole planet is, is your responsibility to take care of. We need to be wise. We need to know the difference between good and evil to do that. But in Genesis 3, instead of letting God teach the first couple the difference between good and evil and grow them up from innocence and naivety and youthfulness, they want to go around God. They want to take from the tree and seek out wisdom for themselves. That's the temptation of the serpent, that, that you don't need God. You can do this yourself. And we find throughout the scriptures that God is more than happy to give wisdom, to d differentiate between good and evil to his people. But that wisdom needs to come from him. And is that true of us as well? God, God offers his wisdom through his word, through his people, and we're like, nah, I don't have time for that. I'm going to go follow this Instagram influencer or just figure it out on my own. Genesis is packed with these hyperlinks. We're going to talk about, I think we're going to talk about them literally every time we get together in this book. There's 
there's going to be something in every passage that either references forward to some other part of scripture or calls back to Genesis. Because this book is, it's like, it's like the Big Bang. All of this energy packed into such a tiny, small space and it just explodes into scripture. Pick a topic that you're interested in. Marriage, family, gender, the nature of reality, truth, our relationship to the divine, human destiny, caring for creation, culture, civilization, everything starts in Genesis. And the scriptures are kind of put together like a mystery. How many of you guys have seen the, the movie Knives Out? Anybody? Yeah. I, I think it's really good. I, I liked it. Um, but it's a mystery. And, and the th- thing about it is, is there's all this stuff that happens throughout the movie that you're just like, wow, whatever. Somebody, somebody knocked on a door or there was a rustling of some leaves and there was a random footprint somewhere. And, it, and the movie just kind of presents these things as it goes along. But then you get to the end of the movie and you realize all of those little things were part of the mystery. This is how he did it. This is how she did that. This is how these different things came together. And and Genesis is going to offer us all those little things that if we're not careful, we'll just be like, oh, that's interesting. Now there's a lot of languages in the world. Huh. Or maybe it's more important than that. Maybe we should pay a little closer attention because it's going to come back later. All these details are going to connect to the story of Jesus later on. Genesis is this this foundational document in Scripture, and the authors of the Bible continually reference back to it and build on it. So that's the first part of our introduction. Next week, we're going to take a look at who wrote Genesis and when and why. And then the following week, we're going to take a look at what was going on in the rest of the world during the time of Genesis to give us some more context. And then we'll start chapter one. So... Uh, we, a couple minutes, if anybody, if is anybody is thinking of anything, any, any questions, uh, anything that is unclear, shout it out. If you don't send, nobody sent me a text, so that's fine. Is everybody good? Everybody's super quiet at this church, if you haven't noticed, trying to draw you out of your shell. Okay. There's no questions. Oh, wait, there is a question. Look at that. Good job, somebody. Do I have to believe the book of Genesis literally, even if I believe the truth behind the story that is communicating to us? Is Genesis meant to be taken literally? That's such a good question. So we're going to get into this a lot because there's a lot of stuff in Genesis that is weird. And at at first, you're going to be like, that's super weird. That doesn't happen today. I don't know what to do with that. Maybe it's all just pretend. But that's the, the idea of, of, of something being literal is a really, is, I don't find it to be a very helpful category. Um, Genesis is trying to communicate something. 
the first question that we have to ask is what is it trying to communicate? If, if it's trying to communicate that um, there was a worldwide flood, the entire planet was covered with water up to the tops of the highest mountains, then, and, and that's the point of that story, then we need to take that seriously. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you would be able to say, well, that's not true if it's meant to be true. I, it's, I think it ceases to be God's word at that point. We believe that the Bible is true, that the Bible is authoritative. But there are, are some people that believe that the flood story is not meant to be taken literally, that, that it wasn't written to be taken literally. We'll talk about those two, there's various viewpoints, and we'll talk about them. Same thing with the creation narrative. Is, is creation six literal days about six to 10,000 years ago, or is it, um, you know, it's, it's just a story about, um, you know, each day is a million years, or there's, there's a myriad of different ways that people look at Genesis. If we start looking at Genesis in our time and go, this is what I believe to be true, and it doesn't fit with Genesis, then I think we're doing it wrong. We have to ask the question, what does Genesis believe? What does Moses want to teach us? And go from there. So I think a lot of things in Genesis are meant to be conveyed as history. That's, that's the way the book is being written. It's not written as you know, a once upon a time fairy tale. And so we have to take that seriously. Are there things in Genesis that might be like, well, I don't know. I don't know what that means. It's disputed. It might not be that it's meant to be taken literally here because this is a poem. There's a lot of variation in there. But I think the most important thing there is we need to take a look at what Genesis is trying to do. And if Genesis is trying to tell us something that it is saying actually happened a specific way, then I think it's important that we take it seriously and believe it to be true because it's God's word. If our starting point is, well, modern science says it differently, well, modern science changes like every year. Like literally they come up with a, a new way of looking at things constantly. But God's word doesn't change. Another question, is it important for Christians to believe that the age of the earth is a specific age? Does Genesis claim the earth is 10,000 years old? How old do you believe the earth is? Fair. Um, yeah, we'll get into that. That's a, that's a long discussion, but we'll get there in chapter one. <laughs> okay, we're going to take communion. Um, Genesis is the beginning of an epic story that culminates with Jesus. It's written over centuries by human authors, but directed by God's Holy Spirit to reveal himself to us. We have this on all of our signage. We say, God is not hidden. That's what revelation means. God reveals himself to us. Just like we don't know anything about creation without God saying, this is what I did. We don't know anything about who God is and how he loved us and loves us without him taking the first step. God has pursued you. He has stepped into human history to say, hello. And this is the God that we serve, and he's interested in your getting to know him.
And so this is what we do every week at the communion table. Jesus says, take this bread. This bread is my body. Take this cup. This cup is my blood sacrificed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you need to know Jesus to remember him, right? If you are are not a Christian, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, this is just a very inadequate meal. But if we're here and we are in relationship with Jesus, if he has revealed himself to us and we have accepted him as our Lord and our Savior and, and he has cleansed us from our sins, then this is part of the way that we remember his work on the cross for us and rejoice in the fact that he has initiated uh, into our lives and he has come to save us. So we're going to sing. I'm going to invite you to take communion and uh, just reflect on the fact that, that you wouldn't know who God is. You wouldn't know your relationship with Christ at all if he didn't reach out. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.